360Ed TV is brought to you by Rice Studios and Agility. So Susan, where's your co-founders of uh, a really strong ed tech company that's servicing so many uh, universities here in Australia? Time is your scarcest commodity. Why did you commit some time to EduGrowth? I chose to commit time to EduGrowth because of initially personal relationships. I've known several of the people who are um, driving EduGrowth and I have a lot of respect for them. Um, it, it came in a way out of the Sydney sort of edutech meetup scene and Terry Hillsberg and Atul and Aiden all, all got going and I wanted to support them. But as, as edu-growth started to take shape, uh, we're, we chose to support them for a much bigger reason, which is they're trying to build an ecosystem. And our business is about creating opportunity through experiential learning. But our software doesn't create that opportunity. What it really does is it enables people to tap into an ecosystem and find opportunities in there. And in order for us to be successful, that ecosystem has to get bigger and richer. It's not just about what we do, but it's about a whole range of companies trying to solve similar problems and build technology and, and then ultimately enable the educators and the employers to collaborate to create that rich ecosystem. We're part of that solution, but we, we're not going to do it all on our own. And the best thing we can do is help other companies that are in that ecosystem actually grow, thrive, and be effective and competitive uh, and, and not make the mistakes we might have made along the way and, and ultimately maybe work with us to build that together. And I, I, I see that as, even though, in fact, some of the companies coming through could easily be competitors to ours in the future, I, I don't really have a problem with that because the pie is very small right now. It's got a long, long way to grow. There's yes. a billion learners out there that need new types of learning and need to be experientially taught so they can develop their professional skills, that's not going to happen by just us alone. And right now, the pie in Australia is only looking at a very small amount to those learners. So we've got to all work together to work as a country and as a team to access that much bigger pie. We interviewed a number of the EdTech uh, applicants uh, in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. And what struck me was, I guess, the passion. Passion never sleeps. And you've got folks there who are 23 year olds on their third startup, and they're just on a roll. They they're just a laser focus. And for me, it was just seeing that that infinite amount of passion and energy, uh, and that was the learning that I took away. Were there any learnings or or takeaways that that maybe you've you've taken from the class of 2017? Well, I just a comment on the passion and energy, and I, I want to but but Susie talk about it. But you know, this is. This is my fifth startup company that I've been involved in over the course of my life, and I'm I'm older now, and I don't have the level of energy I had. But I'm, yeah, I am blown away by, you know, when I think that you know I, I'm tapped out, I look at her, and she's probably got the uh, the most energy of anyone in our company, and um, you know has managed to work, you know, toe to toe with myself and Bo as, as, uh, as co-founders mm. while, while also juggling you know, family and, and responsibilities and, and still being able to keep up that passion. And you know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about how on earth you do that? Because <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, I, I think passion's a, a really key driver and it actually needs to be about solving a problem, not necessarily a, exclusively a passion about being in startup and being in that agile environment because the, the point of being in a startup is eventually you do get to some sort of sustainable business model um, and some people struggle with that transition. Um, but the, the great thing about this company and education in particular is very few people are in education um, to get rich quick. <laughs> Most people are in it because they genuinely like the concept of personal growth and knowledge and knowledge sharing and that sort of thing. And that passion for, for that and all of the people we work with can actually get you through those times that Wes is referring to with when you have little kids or... Um, those sorts of competing priorities it does help you get through that because nobody's in it for a quick buck they're actually Ooh. in it to genuinely change people's lives because through education comes that opportunity um, which uh, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily access if education isn't going through the cataclysmic changes that it is now starting to um, that is opening up that opportunity for not just the top 10% but really the next 80 and hopefully 90% of people are going to have a life-changing opportunity, um, which is rooted in the education experience that they had. You had asked about the, the, the class that just came through and you know some of the things that I saw and, and reflecting back, my first startup was an education technology company and um, it was something where we were way ahead of what the, the world was capable of addressing. We were trying to do um, you know, video-based learning in 1996 over the internet when most people didn't have computer capable of getting on via modem, let alone uh, on the internet. But it was, uh, you know, it's fascinating dealing with educators who were really just struggling to understand some of the changes that were coming down the pipeline. And we, we saw, you know, we were talking to people who could not believe that people would have internet access within a few years. And this was, you know, 96. And you know, five years later, and you know, almost everyone was online, and no one could believe the change would come that quickly. And um, you know, so it was very difficult as a young entrepreneur trying to build that initial set of uh, community and, and getting people to believe that this thing that we were doing could actually, you know, be big and impactful in time. And, and when I look at the the class of 2017, you know, they've, they've got a lot of the same attributes. They're all young. They see a problem. They, they understand it from the perspective of someone that's that's got a whole career ahead of them dealing with these problems. And they are, you know, one of them came and said, "How on earth are you selling to universities?" I and mean, they're just they won't even talk to us. And they said, "Look, you know, it took us a long time to understand how universities think and how they buy. And you can't just show them the, the solution of tomorrow and expect that they will. Even though you might have people in there that see it." they have to go through a process. And so you have to figure out how to translate your vision of tomorrow into the terms of today so that they can engage with it. And maybe it's not engaging with all of it, but it's engaging with the parts that they can wrap their head around. So we have aspects of our software, which we developed years ago, that are only now just getting used because now the educators are saying, oh yeah, wouldn't it be cool if your software could do this? And it's like, oh, well, let's just turn this thing on. We turned off four years ago because no one knew what to do with it. Yes. Um, and and so we see that all the time because we, we see they're coming along the journey. But we couldn't have that conversation if we hadn't brought them along the journey and adapted ourselves to be mm. able to, to work with our customers. 
strikes me that companies such as uh, Intersective are dealing with much more complex problems. Um, you're looking at lifelong learning and employability, and you're doing this at a time when uh, universities are thinking about machine learning, AI, and how to better leverage that. Can you share a little bit about the origins of Intersective um, and what you're doing in the space of working in graded learning? So at the core of experiential learning is this uh, real-world activity and um, often that's hard and ambiguous. It often involves collaboration from multiple parties and uh, often it's not this, um, what is sometimes referred to as hard skills, um, technical knowledge that is received at university. This is that stuff that's much harder to quantify and yep you can read a, a framework about leadership but until you actually go and apply it mm. and then realize what you did wrong and what you would do differently the next time you apply it um you, you're not going to really truly embed that learning um and take that forward so that is something that is incredibly hard to do at scale um particularly when so many organisations choose to approach that problem differently. So creating software that was adaptable enough to accommodate all of these different approaches and was independent of content and framework and those sorts of sorts of things and allowed people to put in whatever their choice methodology was, was really crucial. And that's what the Practera platform does. Um, the other com complicating factor there is that you have university students that want to their learned theory. You have universities that want to verify that students learned their theory and understand it to the requisite level for that qualification. And then you have employers that have want to participate in this collaboration but often have different outcomes, like they're looking for talent or they're looking for business output. Um, and while those things are not necessarily competing, they're not 100% aligned. And if you don't have thought and consideration for how all three parties are gonna get the thing that they need, um, you, your collaboration won't be as successful as it could be. Um, and having mm. a platform that supports all of that for all of the different parties is really important. So so what Susie is, is the crux of what Susie is getting at is the quality at scale problem, which is you know, you've got a billion learners out there that are, it, that are forming a marketplace and they're getting much more sophisticated about what they buy. They're not just buying a brand. They want to learn something. They want an outcome. They, many of them want to get a job as a result of it. And there are education institutions are starting to say, well, how do we scale up? And in Australia over the last decade, a lot of education institutions said, oh, look, we can sell our services to international students. They'll come here and they'll pay us money and we can use that to fund research and, and scale up our, our operations that way. And now the international students are saying, but wait a minute, I, I'm paying a lot of money. I want an outcome from this and I want to be treated. You know, I want to get a high quality experience. And hey, look at these cool online courses. They're a fraction of the price and I might actually get a job out of the back of them. And so there's a pretty big disruption coming on. So unless you can deliver a really quality experience at those scale points, you're going to have a, a real problem. Now on that layer to talk about the technology, you're coming out of a world where you had centralized systems where you had technologies like Blackboard, and, and those centralized systems combined with bureaucracies mean they're pretty slow to adapt to the changes that are coming. And you know, Snapchat wasn't here three years ago. So how do you how do you allow the teachers and students to adapt to actually deal with the changes that are happening right then and there? Um, 
you, you, what you've got is this bring your own device sort of thing where teachers are just mashing up solutions with Slack and Dropbox and they're, and they're doing all of these things in, aside from the core centralized system. Well, that means the data gets fragmented everywhere. And so now you don't have the data to actually assure quality. You can't actually get the data as, a, as an institution and say, are we actually delivering quality at scale? And if we're not, how do we manage that in real time? How do we fix those problems? So the goal of Practera is, and what we're doing is we've got a platform that's actually flexible and adaptable enough that you can do quality at scale. I was just in an event where um, literally as we were going through the event, the facilitators were coming through saying, can we, can we shift this up? Can we add this reflective loop? Um, we, we wanted people to be able to create videos uh, of themselves talking about a strategy and then be able to peer vote across those videos. We literally had to have a situation where they created the videos, had 30 minutes to do it, and then within 30 minutes had to be voting on it across peers. And we had to create that whole experience in real time as the event was going on. We needed a platform that gave us that flexibility to do it. And that's what we had built Practera to do. And so we were able to allow them to just sort of evolve that event as they were getting feedback from the audience uh, and from the participants about, well, this is the thing we're really struggling with. Can you spend more time on it? And that got that loop so tight that you know by the second day they were able to you know, really focus on the things that people were struggling with in the event. And that's that is just a, one use case of it for how you do something in a short chart. Now it's imagine a twelve-week yeah. internship where that's changing all the time. And so to give that flexibility and to allow a small team of educators and administrators to manage complexity, a thousand interns and a thousand startups, all changing rapidly and dynamically. That's that's the Practera platform capability. There's an organic dimension to this, I think, which goes beyond you know the catch cries of authentic learning. That organic responsiveness as that, that osmosis of thought to action happening in the moment, um, that's really what a lot of students are looking for, that ability to bounce off. And in the workplace, that's the sort of thing that happens with yourself and, and Bo and, and Susie, of course. So you're bouncing these ideas around. Um, and that's the point of things like Slack, um, that, that, that um, I guess, stream of consciousness around problems and issues and how we're resolving those in a more streamlined way. And, and technologies like Slack weren't here a couple of years yeah, ago, yeah. and they there will be another technology even better than Slack that's here next year. And the students are living in an environment where they fully expect technology to change rapidly, and they expect to be adopting new technologies, and they want to see that in the workplace. Mm. They want to see companies that are actually able to adopt new technologies and adapt very rapidly. They want to see their universities able to do that. Another thing that we're doing with Practera by creating this three-party ecosystem and helping manage and maintain it is we're not just educating students, but we're also helping the educators enhance their learning. And at the same time, we're actually providing insights to employers about the talent that's coming down the pipeline. And so we have this platform that is trying to solve this complicated three-party collaboration sure. problem. But the benefits of the solution is all three parties actually get stuff out of it. And that, that was one of the big insights we had at an early point in Intersective was that we weren't just selling to the educator. The student had to get value. Any project stakeholder or participant, anyone involved in that experience had to see value in the software or they wouldn't engage. And if they're not engaging, 
then you can't get the data. And if you've got the data, you can support them. And if you can support them, they have a great experience. Mm. And that's the sort of core of the loop that, that we're focused on. So the rise of the marketplace, I think, in the last couple of years in particular with, with the Etsy's, Uber's, uh, Airbnb, that focus on the individual definition of value and success for the end user, I think has started to change that, that value proposition, if you like. For academics, there's a cultural piece there that needs to continue to evolve and be more uh, broad viewing. Um, and I think you've just called that out. So what you're doing is actually, in a sense, looping into, uh, it's almost like a continual kind of continuous improvement loop. So the academics themselves are seeing the options, the possibilities and the potentials that they didn't see before because of the capabilities and the networks that you're bringing. The platform itself is being informed by academic needs, but more importantly, you're also tightly focused on inputs from the end users, the students themselves, in terms of what they see as value, what success is for them. And then the third component to that is, I guess, from that stakeholder perspective, is the businesses themselves, industry, the corporates who are working with you, creating those networks, creating those work integrated learning opportunities and how you then manage those effectively for all of those stakeholders. I think um, what's interesting there is the uh, stakeholders themselves have this huge span of um, capability and where they're coming from. Uh, you, you will have some corporates and you'll have a stakeholder from HR or L&D um, that come from an incredibly process orientated environment where they have a grad program and they take people through it all the way through to one man band startups or um, government agencies which operate uh, a little bit differently and have different um, metrics that they're working towards. But I think what's interesting there is students have always had a really concrete expectation about what they're hoping to get out of their university degrees. Um, they, they want to get a specific piece of theoretical knowledge and then they want to be able to get a job based on that. Uh, I think what's interesting is, is there's always been, certainly over the last 10 years, there's been a bit of a disconnect between what universities think students want. They want this theoretical knowledge and in some cases they will want to go on and do research. Um, and that's a very big part of the university environment. Um, and businesses want work-ready talent that is ready to turn up day one and be productive. And they are now, corporates or industry, um, are now uh, viscerally understanding that gap as our universities. And they're now working much more closely to try and close that gap, um, which is now starting to meet that student expectation, particularly out of faculties such as business faculties and those kind of things. I was speaking with Beverly Oliver a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the way in which Deakin is looking at the challenges that are confronting the typical undergraduate, postgraduate degree and the way in which what it once warranted is being questioned. Um, given the breadth and the depth of the learning relationships that Intersective has, uh, you seem to be um, nurturing a set of um, industry and, and university relationships, which I think is pretty unique in the Australian space. Um, are there any particular insights that you could bring to that discussion around the credentialing and the, 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 the warrants that have traditionally been the domain of universities and how you see that as morphing or evolving? Sure. Um, 
the, it's, it's an interesting transition. Right now, micro-credentials got the hype that MOOCs had a few years ago and have all the same a good point, actually. potential successes and problems there. And that there are some MOOCs now that are amazing and they, they have opened up the access of education, but a lot of attempts to do MOOCs failed. Micro-credentialing, I see having a very similar trajectory. Um, as an employer, if all of a sudden, three years from now, rather than having a couple of degrees from institutions and brands I understand, I have to look at a CV that has 500 mini credentials and I don't know how they relate to each other, how they stack up, the level of sophistication. So right, the challenge is that the, the, the risk the universities have is moving from something that is well understood by the consumer of that product to moving to something that may not be very well understood. Now, some universities like Deakin are building those programs in collaboration with large employers like exactly. Cisco, yep. right? And so that's a very smart way to do it by by slowly getting the employers up to speed and doing it in conjunction with it. Um, but but you'll see others that will just sit there and say, oh yeah, we've got to explode this degree out into 20 different credentials because they're chasing after a revenue stream and seeing some of these as ways to do loss leaders and stack up. The, the thing to, to the, the biggest insight we have is that you know, the Australian marketplace, but, but the global marketplace, is made up predominantly of small and mid-sized businesses. Those are where most people going out of university are going to actually work. They're focused on the ASX 200 and the, the big name brands like Deloitte, but only a few people are going to get jobs in. Most of them are going to work for small, mid-sized businesses, some of which will be startups, but some of which are businesses that are totally unsexy, but, you know, turn over $100 million a year in revenue. And, um, you know, the the question here is how did those businesses see the universities and what level of conversation and how are they involved in this micro-credentialing process and how is how are the um, students and the projects and the learning that the students need to do wh where is the opportunity to tap into them because there's only so many internships and business projects that the ASX 200 can field you got 500,000 international students in Australia at the moment how are they going to all get work experience. Well, it's going to be because the universities figure out how to tap into the small mid-sized business and actually get those businesses engaged in connecting with and collaborating with the students and giving them projects and working with them. But right now, the universities aren't really focused on how to engage that way. So part of what we've been working on with some of the project programs of state government like um, Study New South Wales and um, Study Melbourne has been on finding ways to get a much broader range of employers to engage with students in ways that are sensible. Because if you're a small business, you're sitting there saying, well, how much is that gonna cost me in time? Am I gonna, I don't even know how to manage a student team. What do I have to do? If we can find ways to help the universities take that ambiguity out and make it really mm -hmm. clear, hey, you're giving back, you're also getting some value. No, it's not exploitative. The students are learning something, but we can come up with models that work for you. It's a reasonable time investment, and you're going to actually get this value out the back end. That's really powerful. And so there is a technology component needed to do that, which we focus on with Practera, but there's also a whole bunch of structures and systems which we've been trying to build that ecosystem ourselves, which is the one you referred to of, of this sort of large network of employers and universities. And we're working with that ecosystem to try and create that capability to take um, those opportunities to the next levels of scale. Wes, that is the most articulate and well thought 
framework for how universities should consider their growth of credentialing within their, their four walls. Um, the way in which you've explained the challenge when we, we add the words at scale to the mm -hmm. problem and then the target market we should be addressing, I've never heard um, defined and explained in that particular way so eloquently, so thank you. Seriously, that's the gold in today's session right there. So thank you, that was brilliant. Um, I'll just finish off with, with a question that circles back to edu growth. And one of the things about mentoring, we talk about the power of the story. Um, and we use stories um, to make knowledge more accessible, to teach lessons. If there was a story you could share with your younger self, what would that be? And I'll get something from both of you here. Wait, you should first. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I, I'm actually going to reach for a fairly common one, but it's about um, the power of failure yeah. and um, learning from mistakes. And I would probably even expand on that mm. and uh, highlight the, the benefits of sharing failure, um, and particularly in this mentoring context. Um, expect, mistakes are very expensive to make, both in time and money and, and consequence, and um, the more often you can share those in a collaborative ecosystem, such as EduGrowth and the, the broader EduTech system, um, back to Wes's earlier point about growing the pie and the fact that this education problem is not going to be solved by one company um, alone or even a conglomerate, yeah. it, it is actually a genuinely global problem and the power of sharing those failures and particularly why, so the details of those failures is, is really, really critical and I would probably recommend to my younger self about being more open about the details of those failures um, in order to get different perspectives on, on why those failures occurred and what was the key learning. Great. Wes, handball. <laughs> when I was young, I was a absolute egomaniac lone wolf. Um, I, you know, thought I was smart, knew everything, um, could sit down and, you know, work for days on end and do, you know, had tons of energy, could do all of that stuff. I am now slightly less of an egomaniac most of coming to australia and you know getting used to the culture where you don't you know like in, in america and silicon valley in new york where you know you the way you introduce yourself is talk about the 20 great things you did since breakfast um here it's a little bit uh more subdued and subtle so i've, I've adapted over the decade i've been here and most most people think it's for the better although back in in new york now everyone's convinced i do nothing because i don't brag about everything that i do uh, but you do smirk. Yeah, you know, I, there is a wink and a, a <laughs> nod. Yeah, I'm still right. Um, <laughs> but but that that idea of of no longer being a lone wolf and actually letting your team um, take ownership and and get to the point where they feel they actually don't want you to get involved and to do to do the detail. They want to be uh, empowered and they want they feel proud when you don't need to be involved and when they've done it and they've owned it. And to get from you're doing everything to a team that, you know, is actually really knocking it out of the ballpark, you've got to let go. And you've and that's a, that's, that's much, hard. much harder yes. as as someone who's used to being able to build it all and, and knowing when to let go and also watching. So I watched what happened um, 
you know, about a year ago when I, I jumped in at the sort of last moment because I felt like the team wasn't really, um, you know, going to get over the line. And, and I saw the impact that it had and, and where I, the, the ego in me said, oh, they're, I'm going to charge from the front and that, you know, they're going to get all rallied up. But, but it didn't actually work out that way. They, they were actually quite upset that it was sort of a, a reflection on their inability to perform that I had to come in and, and do this. And rather than get motivated, it was really stressful and demotivating for them. And, you know, I, and I asked myself in the end, like, what would it have cost to have let that failure happen, but given the team the ability to own it? Because they couldn't even own the failure at that point. So they actually, you know, then it was like, well, I own the failure because I jumped in. But, you know, that can I really blame them? And, and, and it, got, it just got messy and awkward. And a lot of the value got, of that whole experience got lost. And so, you know, and, and then I reflected, I'm like, my God, how many times did I do that over the course of my life and of my previous businesses? How many times did I pull the rug out from under my team thinking that I was being the hero coming in to save them, but realizing I was just basically being a jerk and not actually empowering the people that were trying to make me successful as well as them. And so, you know, that part of that maturity sort of, you know, of, of seeing this for the first time through, you know, really looking at, um, and, and part of that came out of the diversity because, you know, I, I previous businesses was a monoculture. And now here we've got this, you know, this rich diversity and, and, and watching the different expressions and trying to understand it and saying, you know, because because I knew I didn't immediately understand them. I, I said, how do I, how do I, process what I think I'm seeing. And, and what I saw was, wow, you know, I, I, I'm really not doing a great job as a leader here. I need to step back and learn something. And, you know, I doubt younger me could have understood that even yeah. if I, even if I said it, yeah. I, um, you know, I really had a massive ego back then. It was, it was, it was a problem. You need some scars from time yeah. to time. But, uh, Susie, Wes, thank you so much. Uh, I have really enjoyed today's chat and I've really appreciated the, um, the generosity of your sharings, your insights, um, and those little um, nuggets of gold that we can take away and hopefully share with our, Pleasure. With our viewers. Oh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah.